Hello and welcome back everybody from me, Tim Cable, to the Talking Sports Media podcast. And this month I'm going to be talking to author Dave Hannigan about his remarkable book, which is called 15 Rounds in the Wilderness. It is the story of the life of Muhammad Ali from his retirement in the ring after that drama in the Bahamas against Trevor Burbick, right up to the lighting of the Olympic flame in Atlanta 1996, the centennial Olympic Games. First, though, just a reminder of some of the recent stories you may have missed. The history of European football in 100 objects with Andy Bollum was out last month. Uh, If you had to curate a list of 100 things and events that describes the whole history of European football, what would you choose? Listening to that, there's some surprising ones in there. Get It On, also with author John Sperling, came out recently, and we went back to reminisce about football in the 1970s, which for some was still the greatest decade of them all. But it wasn't just the game, it was the culture, the TV, the music, the fashion, all of which got a mention. All of these and every other edition we've produced over the last few years is available to stream or download to your iPhone or smart device via the website at www.talkingsportsbooks.com or via any of your main streaming partners. Right then, back to today, 15 rounds in the wilderness. I spoke to the author Dave Hannigan from his home in New York a couple of days ago about his soon-to-be-released book. What I liked about this book was the fact that I had very little, if any, real idea of the life Muhammad Ali led after that ignominious end to his boxing career against Trevor Burbick. And this is the story of somebody ending a life, the majority of which had been spent very much in the public view and setting off on this journey that had no specific destination or objective other than, as we say, searching for a higher purpose. That's exactly true, Tim. It's really a case of Ali was finished with boxing. And even even for the first year of his retirement, people still wondered whether he would come back. And then he just embarks on this odyssey, to to use a word that I think best describes it, because he goes anywhere everywhere some some places he's led to some places he goes in, by himself um he turns up in bizarre locations you know pakistan uh north mm-hmm. korea uh, the kmart agm with evil Knievel in tow <laughs> you know and what what struck me is is i mean i've read everything about ali i love the ali story i've written two books about him in the past is that this period was kind of underreported and and not a lot of people knew where he went and, and what actually he did for many of those years. He'd turn up on TV every now and again in, in an increasingly diminished physical condition, but people weren't actually aware of where he was. And even the two greatest books about Ali, uh, Jonathan Igg's recent biography and Thomas Hauser's oral history from, from 30 years ago, even those two which are, you know, the two definitive books on Ali, if you want, they don't really touch in great detail upon this period, the 80s in particular, Mm. when Ali was kind of a lost soul at times. It's a sad tale, but it's funny. 
It's heartwarming. He is a wonderful character in many ways. Just he ends up in places where if you were scripting this, you could not have put him without people questioning, no, you know, the it, credibility it, of him. You're you're absolutely right because it looks at times like a, a comedy film. I mean, first up, there's this uh, black exploitation movie, Body and Soul, where he rocks up and plays himself. And he's dismissed. Olivier needn't worry. Uh, we've, then, we've then got the CEO of Ali Sports of Promotions, guilty of embezzling millions from a Beverly Hills bank. Uh, and, and this showed to, or served to show really, a, a bit of naivety that often runs through this tale. Um, Ali not knowing an awful lot about what's going on. And he's just being guided by people that are often taking advantage. Absolutely. For the first 10 of the 15 years, and maybe even a little longer, he is being exploited uh, in various ways by various people, with, you know, characters you couldn't even, you know, invent in a work of fiction, a dodgy sheikh, you know, years before the fake sheikh and the news of the world, there's this dodgy sheikh, Mohammed El Fassi, who may or may not be worth billions, but Ali, has, he has some, somehow worked his way into Ali's entourage, and they're flying around America, visiting small towns and uh, distributing uh, gifts of money, be, money belonging to the uh, sheikh, allegedly, or certainly to his family. Uh, then you have a, a white-collar uh, guy ripping him off called Richard Hirschfeld, or Hirschfeld, who's a lawyer, who is a complete gangster, really, a complete gangster, you know, except he's, he's wearing a white collar, so it's a different kind of thing. Then you have Arthur Morrison, um, a street hustler, a good old-fashioned street hustler, um, who again worms his way into Ali's entourage, puts Ali's names on Ali's name on stuff like barbecue sauce, um, you know, flogging <laughs> anything you can, you know, because the Ali name was worth something and people wanted to exploit it. Hirschfeld will exploit it for political ends. Arthur Morrison will try and make a quick buck, but in a way that I think is very hard to, for us to understand in modern sport. Ali was so vulnerable to people, you know, who were trying to make a buck and who, who could get access to him because it was very easy to access Ali in a way that it would not be as easy, I think, today to touch or to get close to any of, you know, your Messies or your, you know, Tiger Woods or anybody like that. Yeah, there were leaders of politics and religion that started to appear very uh, early on. We had the the audience with the Pope in Rome, and, and this wasn't just any audience with the Pope. This was actually he and the Pope sat in the Pope's personal quarters. I mean, this simply didn't happen for normal people. And again, another sign of the standing in which he was held globally. Absolutely. I mean, the, he, he meets the Pope just after the Pope had been shot by a, uh, a Turkish uh, a Turkish Muslim. And Ali, obviously, at that point, is the most famous Muslim in the world. Uh, they meet at the private residence. And then in a classic Ali kind of departure, he comes out and says, how did the conversation go? And he said, well, I told him to take all the white statues out of all the churches in the world, which was kind of a recurring theme of his uh, about, you know, why are all the statues white? He'd been going on about that since the 60s. But again, he meets he meets the Pope. He meets Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela, when he walks or when he comes to America for the first time upon his release from from prison, uh, is walking along and he's in Los Angeles and he sees Ali coming towards him and he turns to the guy with him and says, champ. 
you know, because the champ is there. Like, so Nelson Mandela, who upon the release from jail is, is arguably the most famous man on earth at that point, is awestruck when he sees Ali coming towards him. And later he will invite him to South Africa and the two men will have tea in South Africa in 1993, I think. But all of these, you know, Fidel Castro, Donald Trump, who at the time was was very big in boxing, you know, he, he is he is mixing with all sorts of people. But the greatness of Ali, the true greatness for me, and why he is so appealing as a character, is he can go from, you know, presidents and kings uh, to suddenly, and popes, to suddenly, you know, turning up at a primary school uh, uninvited to do magic tricks for the kids and just to cause some general havoc. So the wit and the humour were sharp, even in moments of, of steep decline. Uh, there was a great quote, Ray Leonard recounted asking Ali if he should go pro after the Olympics, and he said, get Dundee in. Angelo Dundee, he's, he's not a great trainer, he's not a great manager, but he's got the complexion and connection to get the protection. You know, his humour is, is incredible because even when he's in decline, even when he does not appear sharp, he still is able to deliver moments, little cameos that absolutely wow people. You know, that he, he even, even there's a famous TV appearance with him and um, him and Mike Tyson and Sugar Ray Leonard. They, they appear on the Arsenio Hall show. And Ali, you know, it's the mid-80s. Ali is starting to show real signs that he's on the way downhill. Uh, but Sugar Ray Leonard talks about being, or sorry, Mike Tyson talks about being in a juvenile detention home when Ali came to visit. And Ali turns around, and Ali hasn't spoken very much during the appearance. And when he has, he hasn't appeared very strong in his voice. And Ali turns around and says, I remember you. You know, white T-shirt, blue jeans. And Arsenio Hall, the presenter, goes, that's amazing. And then Mike Tyson starts laughing. He goes, that was the uniform. <laughs> Everybody wore a white T-shirt and blue jeans. <laughs> so, and, and that was even, you know, that video, the video of that chat is on, on YouTube. Uh, I like a lot of his, you know, TV appearances from the period that I cover are. And he is, you know, he does not look in good fell. It's, he's not impressive. But there are the moments where he just delivers the magic. The magic is still there. You know, as somebody said, the magic is still behind the eyes. You know, even, even though he looks different, he's slower, he speaks slower, he's definitely affected negatively by, by his health problems. He's still able to bring out the old razzle-dazzle and, and deliver something. You know, you know, his big thing, and this is the whole kind of theme of the book, wherever he goes, he just delivers one memory. <laughs> You know, there will be a memory of the moment you were in the orbit of Ali. You know, you will leave and you will, you know, the people who were near him will leave that that day and go, that was my moment. I have a memory. I, I crossed paths with the great Ali. Yeah, people talk about the decline, obviously, in his health, but not everybody really seemed to believe it at the outset. And some would do their very best uh, to convince you that there was little wrong and to actually get him in the ring. I mean, there were numerous tales in the book of him being coaxed back in the ring, obviously not to fight professionally, but to do exhibitions, to spar. 
I mean, he was in the ring with uh, James Tillis, Quick Tillis, who was uh, as an up-and-coming heavyweight with, with Tim Witherspoon. Absolutely, and it was disgusting when you read back. And knowing what we know about his condition, and you look back and you see him doing 10 rounds of sparring with heavyweights in their prime, preparing for heavyweight, you know, preparing for title contests. And you're like, this is disgusting. And, you know, invariably Don King was involved in one of those episodes. Uh, Of course he was uh, always, always a nefarious influence. Uh, But yeah, and and even, you know, fighting, he fought fought the NHL's, the toughest man in the National Hockey League, Dave Semenko, uh, up in Canada for charity. Uh, he, he goes to Tehran. He gets in, in into the ring with the uh, with, with the Olympic champion from Tehran uh, in a or from Iran. Sorry, in a in a kind of a whatever showy exhibition mode. That's a bit of a joke, but if you just if you see him getting in the ring, it's kind of sad and and disturbing when when you see him just even climb through the ropes. So there there there's a little bit of exploit not a little bit there's a major bit of exploitation running through the narrative especially in the 80s it, it tapers off in the 90s because um his, his fourth wife Lonnie uh and other people around him like Howard Bingham his best friend the photographer you can see them closing the gate and and protecting him more and 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 again protecting his brand because his brand was was hijacked by people all through the 80s to sell everything cologne chocolate chip cookies mm-hmm. uh roast chicken uh every you know stuff uh you know stuff that you wouldn't associate with muhammad ali and and you know people eventually they start to stop that and, and they get they get a handle on it but not before i mean you know one of the one of the funny things about researching this book is going on ebay and buying products with muhammad ali's name on it from this period Oh, I was I was having a look. <laughs> I was doing exactly the same. I was looking at the fossil watch. <laughs> but just going back to that first trip to the UK, the focus was on not only his physical appearance, but questions about his mental well-being also arose after Ali was quoted by one tabloid as saying that he was being watched everywhere he went. Uh, President Reagan had special teams of people following his every move. Do you think this was just dark humour on Ali's side, or was there something potentially more sinister, or was this, you know, could this be mental health related? Well, there's a couple of things that are interesting about that quote, it, it, and I presented, I let, I let everything in the book kind of stand alone. I don't read, you know, I don't put it. I, I report it as it happened in the period like that it happened eighty two, eighty three, eighty four. I don't kind of, I don't, you know, go back and tell you my judgment from here, mm. but. That quote is odd because it only appeared in one newspaper because usually when you're researching an alley visit to any city, whether in England, whether in the US, wherever, you'll get multiple accounts from different newspapers, but they'll all have the same quotes. That that quote only appeared in one newspaper. I sense he was having fun because, as you can see throughout the rest of the 80s, Ali is hanging with the Republican Party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ali is Ali is with Reagan, and this is hard to take from any of Ali's fans and his devotees. He becomes part of the Republican establishment uh, through a relationship with Senator Orrin Hatch, a Republican senator from Utah. And you know, he, he at one point is going to the White House to talk about a job in the Bush administration. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I wonder, was he making fun of that or was he mocking it? Because for the rest of that trip, he seemed 
not him, not as sharp as he used to be, but he did not seem out there, you know, in terms of delivering outrageous quotes. And, and again, when he comes to England, I love that he, he, he ends up, you know, where does he go? Hansworth in Birmingham, you know, which was off the beaten track, a troubled area at the time, you know, had a lot of social problems. And that's the perfect place for Ali. Like, that's where Ali wanted to be. Like, Ali didn't want to be glad-handled and brought around, you know, to, to, to specifically chosen places. He wanted to go where, where his fans were, you know. He wanted to see the real streets, if, if you want to put it like that. Yeah. Sometimes I find the quotes that were attributed to various people getting a bit uh, personal. I mean, Larry Marchant said he's got the gait of an arthritic old man. But then on a flight back the next day, he sees him doing magic tricks for Sugar Ray Leonard and recounting dialogue from a play. And he concluded by saying he walks slow because there's nowhere to go that he hasn't been. So people still couldn't make up their mind whether there was you know, a degree of play acting going on here. But as I said, some of those quotes started to get a bit more personal. Absolutely. And and the thing is, and what me what what I liked about, about doing this was you get the you know the eyewitness account from independent people. So Ali would wander into a small town or would come to a small town for a, whatever reason, and the local papers would send their guy. This was when local papers still existed. Yeah. Local papers are almost gone now. Um in America, and the, the local paper guy would just, he would write what he saw. If he saw Ali in a terribly debilitated condition, a shadow of himself, he would write that. And he would write it very raw and very, you know, um, I'm, I don't want to say the language was hurtful, but, you know, he wouldn't be pulling his punches, to use an unfortunate metaphor, under the circumstances. And you, you get the picture of that. And then Somebody would follow that up, it may be in a bigger media outlet, and then Ali's handlers would say, oh, he didn't take his medication that day, you know, there was he was tired from the flight. Uh, there would always be an equivocation. But if, if you know, when, when you read the book, you'll see it gradually, year on year, he, the, the, the quotes or the, the descriptions of him are, being, are ringing truer and truer as you go along. And, and the efforts to equivocate and to explain away uh, his situation with you know trite excuses they're gone you know as people suddenly realize and even Ali himself resists for years getting involved <clears throat> excuse me getting involved with the Parkinson's Foundation of America but then in the mid-90s he finally comes around and says yeah I will, I will get involved I will put my name to this disease because you know, he knows that his name has power in terms of fundraising for research and for the science and stuff like that. So there's a, there's a journey in that respect as well. How did he take being banned from the magic circle in the uh, in the UK after he'd done this or committed this heinous crime of uh, revealing how a trick or, or tricks were done? And they just got rid of him. This is after giving him, obviously, honorary membership. Well, like, could you think of any other major athlete in history where we'd be discussing that time that he was thrown out of the Brotherhood of Magic, <laughs> which sounds like uh, a very kind of Harry Potter, kind of Harry Potter-esque plot. But he was an honorary member of the Brotherhood of Magic because he promoted magic everywhere he went. Everywhere he went, he would do magic tricks. He loved magic dearly. It was like his favourite pastime, uh, I think, in retirement. And then, 
obviously he goes and he explains all the secrets on TV and the Brotherhood of Magic take umbrage. And Ali did not seem that upset because he kept doing the same tricks over and over again. Uh, and in fact, one of the things as I researched this and it's 15 years of his life is how many how many different ways can I describe Ali making a handkerchief disappear? How, how many different words can I use for the same trick? And and even actually right at the end of the book, he's in Cuba and he does the trick for Fidel Castro, yes. you know, fearsome <laughs> Fidel Castro who's actually like a child looking in wonder at Ali doing the fake Tom and the disappearing handkerchief trick. Uh, And then in the end, he presents Castro with a memento, which is his fake Tom that he uses to make the handkerchief disappear. These business deals we've we've touched on, if he were around today and he just retired, he'd have an array of advisors, accountants, and he'd be a multimillionaire within months. we had problems right from the uh, from the get go. The people allegedly acting on his behalf, more often than not, were the champion sport agency to promote new talent. Uh, nothing wrong with the talent. Eddie Mustafa Mohammed, Tim Witherspoon, both of course who had significant careers. Uh, they were in court accused of deceiving investors, disguising a what was it half a million six hundred thousand loss as a loan we had the champion cookies on the way that wasn't such a bad deal the ode cologne ali uh, which yeah had its at its moment he couldn't endorse tobacco alcohol or anything that affected his uh, his religious beliefs but that champion sport agency had problems right from the word go the champion sports agency appears to have been the the handiwork of Richard Hirschfeld, mm. this Virginia lawyer who was a dastardly character who came trailing a reputation for being involved in a very dodgy bank that went bankrupt, owing millions to people. Um, and he somehow glommed on to Ali and he became Ali's closest advisor for a period in the 80s. And the champion sports, which was a debacle from start to finish, um, as you said, great names were attracted because Ali obviously was involved and you had some really good fighters on the roster, uh, but Hirschfeld was a gangster. And, and the whole thing was to do with a Sudanese oil deal involving a German company. Uh, you, know, you, you know, this is like international financial um, shenanigans uh, that Ali had very little to do with. And that was, you know, Hirschfeld was using money from the Germans who then because he had promised the Germans Ali would put his name to something in Sudan that would open a door in Sudan. Um, And again, who else would you be talking about but a a boxer who could go to Sudan and put his name on something and get the government of Sudan in Khartoum to sign off on something? Uh, But anyway, Champion Sports was a complete debacle. Ali was, you know, being led by, by Hirschfeld down a very, you know, shady road, and everybody involved was embarrassed by it. It was a disgrace. He was, you know, he ended up in court. Ali had to go into court to testify. And even in court, Ali wouldn't throw Hirschfeld under the bus. I mean, he, that's the other thing. Ali was incredibly loyal uh, to this man who was a complete gangster, uh, who, who then not only after leading him. In, there's an embarrassing moment, actually, on the Dave Letterman show on TV where Ali's being interviewed and. And he's asked questions because Larry Holmes falls out with champion sports and is bringing a lawsuit. And then Ali has to invite Hirschfeld out of the audience to help him with the questions. And it's just, it's a very tough interview to watch. It's on YouTube. It's 
really, if you're an Ali fan, it's cringe-inducing because he shouldn't be out there. Letterman puts him on the spot, and then the shady lawyer walks out of the crowd, and it really is dramatic and awful. But even after that, even after being embarrassed in court, when, when he's basically told in court that Hirschfeld has committed fraud, Ali stands by him, and then Hirschfeld repays him by starting to use his name for political for political means in Washington and by doing impressions of him, by doing interviews as Ali. Hirschfeld did a great Ali impression and he would phone up reporters and talk as Ali in order to influence political events in Washington. September of 1984 was the time when at last there was official confirmation all wasn't well. Ali had checked into hospital for tests. And then he disappeared off to West Germany. Now, his hospital stay was leaked to the press. And finally, we get something of a prognosis. The doctor's coming out and saying that he doesn't have Parkinson's, but he does have Parkinson's syndrome and that Ali will respond to medication. Now, do you think that they were perhaps holding back the full prognosis here and that in reality they did actually know that he did have Parkinson's. No, I, I think that was the medical diagnosis at the time. I mean, that was that was the actual medical diagnosis was syndrome, not um, not the disease itself. I mean, I'm not qualified to explain the you know the the exact difference yeah, yeah. between that. And I know it may be just a, a matter of pedantry, as you say, and and just wanting to keep keep him from admitting the full the full truth, uh, but. You know, the, the the drugs that he was on were certainly the drugs that were given to Parkinson's patients. Um, and again, you know, in terms of doctors, even getting an admission of this was something because, you know, when he fought Burbeck, they produced a medical report that said Ali was in fine fettle and Ali was perfectly fit. And everybody around Ali knew that that was not true in 1981 at all, and that there had been a brain scan of Ali much earlier that had shown damage, um, you know, before the Larry Holmes fight, and that that should have been, you know, Ali should never have been in the ring against Burbeck. So, so there had been so many dodgy medical goings on around Ali, um, you know, since basically since Doctor Ferdi Pacheco had left. Doctor Ferdi Pacheco, the famous, yes. you know, Ali's Ali's mm-hmm. doctor in the glory years, he left in the mid seventies because he said. You know, he wrote a letter to everybody involved with Ali and said, this has got to stop. He cannot get back in the ring. And and that was ignored. You know, once Ferdi Pacheco had left Ali's side, the medical situation deteriorated and the medical records to me were always tailored to suit what his needs were at the time. So this this admission in 84 is big because it is a revelation that there is something wrong. And it is, you know, it, it is a revel- an admission that, that his health is, is questionable or is deteriorating. And then, of course, he goes off on this, you know, wacky doctor search where he, again, showing his vulnerability uh, and his availability. He, he talks about going to, he's in Mexico City talking about this brain treatment that's already killed seven people uh, that, that is being pioneered by a doctor there. And then you have this um, doctor in, in uh, he's actually Yugoslav or, uh, from from Yugo, with the old Yugoslavia, Medinica, who's another questionable character, who's also going to do something to clean his blood, uh, and and the quest, 
you know, he admits the illness, but then he goes off on this quest for kind of wacky medical cures that lead him, you know, into... You talked about wacky diagnosis. He says, look... um, this has got nothing to do with with Parkin, Parkinson's. Raiko Medinichka, he, he said, you, know, you, took, you mentioned the blood cleansing. He said it's all to do with household pesticides. This is this is what has given him the problems that he has uh, got. And, you know, again, the, the Mexican guy, this was the one that extracted cells from adrenal glands to implant them in part of the brain that regulates body movement. There was a desperation because the Medinicha stuff, he keeps going back to that guy, you know, even after Medinicha has been exposed, there's lots of stuff in the newspapers about Medinicha being a fraud. Um, he keeps going back because I, I think with Ali, like his physical prowess was part of his legend. And, and if that's part of your legend to lose that, I think, it must be incredibly tough for a person, you know, to be to be like this incredible physical specimen for most of your adult life, and then to start to diminish like this. The quest for some some magic beans, some sort of mm. cure all that will help you. I think I think he wasn't scared. I think he was desperate. Um, but again, you know, not not only did Medinicha come out with this stuff about pesticides at the training camp in Pennsylvania, you know, getting into his blood. He also, Medinich also gave interviews where he said, I've watched his fights back and he never took that many blows to the head. (laughs) And people like Mark Cram, the great journalist who covered Ali in the 70s and wrote some of the definitive magazine pieces about Ali, you know, he writes a piece saying this this is this guy is a scam. This is a charlatan. This man cannot be taken seriously. Why is Ali getting treatment from him? But it goes on for years. It's like there's a no one shouted stop vibe to some of this stuff with Ali that, that eventually his fourth wife, Lonnie, she shouts stop. There does seem to be a cutoff in the early 90s where they where they start to roll back. Um, and gain more control and, and more acceptance, maybe, of the physical situation as well. But up to then, you know, to be in, he's in, th- in the thrall of this, you know, wacky doctor who is exposed repeatedly. You know, Medinicha, a woman died because he was going to cure her cancer with his, with his blood treatment program and that nobody else in the world was using. And, you know, unsurprisingly, did not cure the woman of cancer and she died. Uh, what we do see is this realization more and more of those in high office recognizing his standing across the globe and across the continents, especially Africa and the Middle East. Uh, George W. Bush, who was the deputy uh, president at the time, wanted him to enter into dialogues with Ayatollah Khomeini to procure the release of American hostages in Beirut. Um, Pretty much on the same journey or the same time, he's flying into Lebanon to meet the leaders of Hezbollah. I mean, Ali literally is about the one person on the planet that can go anywhere and speak to anybody. He absolutely can. And when you when you think about, you know, I mean, Lebanon at that time, I don't think there was anywhere in the world that was more dangerous uh, in 1985 than than Lebanon. I think it was in in the 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 whole, there was a. 
there was a rule in Lebanon that there was no bombing in the mornings so that they could get out and do their shopping, but then the bombing began <laughs> in the afternoon. You know, it was that normal, the violence, the carnage, uh, the conflict. And yet Ali goes and is basically, you know, put into a car and and brought kind of uh, switching cars along the way uh, to, meet the, to meet the leader of Hezbollah. Uh, and that that is to do with the you know the the Iranian hostages and and getting or getting people getting Americans who are being held in, in Tehran back. He then you know who, who what other athlete could do this kind of stuff? He goes to North Korea or to, to sorry he goes to Vietnam to try to get back some of the missing POWs from the Vietnam War, which obviously is the full circle from his from his own life, his anti-Vietnam War stance. He goes to Baghdad in the days before. Uh, the or in the weeks before the outbreak of the the first Iraq War, as they call it here in America, uh, and he goes to meet Saddam Hussein when he's in a terrible physical condition himself, and he brings back some hostages. He gets Americans freed, and even at that time, he when he goes to Baghdad to meet uh, Saddam Hussein, uh, it's against the wishes of the American government. The American government do not want him there, but he basically goes on a freelance kind of solo mission there. And he does succeed in getting an audience with Saddam. He does bring back some Americans with him. Um, you know, that's the most successful one. He flies into Israel at another point looking to try to get the release of Palestinian prisoners, which obviously is not very successful. But the audacity of it, you know, the ambition of it, that he will he will go anywhere uh, because he knows that his face, his legend and his name opens doors and gets him audiences with people. He ends up on the Khyber Pass, doesn't he? This is to address the Afghans that were fighting the Russian invasion as well. And again, you mentioned in the book a quote, he came out with this quote, if you give me a gun and permit me to participate in your war, I will. At which point, all of a sudden, guns start appearing from every member of the audience as they thought they got Ali on their side. I mean, he was there, obviously, you know, to do his humanitarian thing, but he brings along four tons of powdered milk with pictures of him on the tin. This is uh, another uh, business deal. But the thing that stands out here, he's doing this audience in Peshwa, uh, where it's later identified by the video that sitting in the audience was a young um, Osama bin Laden. Like, who? <laughs> Ali is bringing powdered milk that is part of a business that he's running with the Guccione family, who are the publishers of porn magazines, right? So the world's most devout Muslim is bringing powdered milk to Muslim refugees in a trouble spot of the world. You know, uh, Mujahideen are fighting the Soviets or whatever, and they're, they flee to Peshawar. And there in the front row is the you know future most wanted man in the world, Osama bin Laden, um, who at that time was flitting between Afghanistan and Pakistan as they fought the Russians. I mean that that's an Ali, that's the Ali madness, the Ali magic captured just in in one small cameo that he's just you know he goes to like who would go to somewhere that's basically a war zone or certainly on the fringes of the war zone at that time. Uh, to meet people, to deliver humanitarian aid, and to you know, I don't see, I don't see many uh, world class athletes right now going to Ukraine uh, to deliver aid. You know, maybe I've missed it, but you know, this would be Tiger Woods turning up in Kiev, you know, walking with Zelensky and saying, "We're with you in your hour of need." Uh, it really is. He is 
you know, for Ali is is flawed. He comes out with some crazy stuff. He comes out with some wonderful stuff. But the magic of him is that he will be in situations that no other athlete, in fact, no other celebrity could ever end up in. And, and you know, the associations, uh, you know, the, the, dra- the dramatis personae of this book alone just sum up the, the craziness of his life. And it, I think it's often forgotten because the 80s and the 90s were kind of a dark period for him uh, before his kind of the revival of the Ali legend after Atlanta, after he lit the flame in Atlanta at the, at the Olympic Games. But it's, it's very true. Just, and it's what keeps yeah. you turning the pages of the book because most of this people will have no idea of. The whole business thing, we would never have seen Ali's cookies or the eau de cologne uh, or even have heard of Ali Motors. If you if you mentioned Ali Motors to anybody, they wouldn't have a faintest clue. Here he is thinking that he's going to take over an old Volvo factory to make um, custom sports cars, which obviously doesn't get off the ground. And then the one that does rumble on is the champion shoe polish, uh, which begins life despite them being worn by Kiwi, not to produce it due to potential legal and copyright issues. And you're just left often open-mouthed. Uh, he rocks up, as we've mentioned, with evil Knievel at a shareholder meeting for Kmart and berates them about not buying enough product. Um, and then we have Arthur Morrison uh, bounding around uh, television, telling everybody that Sinatra, Jane Fonda, bizarrely, Robert Mugabe all had interests in this product. And, and people somewhere are buying this. Absolutely. And, and to give you an idea of how bizarre this is, Arthur Morrison is conducting a lot of this business from a payphone in a restaurant in Harlem in New York City. <laughs> and he is he is centrally involved in it in this and he you know at one point he is claiming bishop desmond tutu who you know was a real iconic name in the 80s you know from from the struggle in south africa to end apartheid i mean bishop desmond tutu was a global figure and he embroils bishop desmond tutu in the shoe polish war between uh kmart and champion shoe polish because he wants kmart to be exposed as racists uh, you know, when they come to the when they come to the uh, AGM, they bring like busloads of black school children who have been taken out of Detroit for the day and just brought in here as props, as extras to kind of load up the the case against them. And and to give you an idea, Arthur Morrison, I mentioned already, a terrible, terrible person. But Evil Knievel was an awful individual as well, who at this point was basically in public disgrace having almost beaten one of his associates almost to death. He was like a very tarnished uh, name by that point. So hanging out with Ali uh, was good for him. It was not good for Ali. It was not a good look for Ali. And, you know, but to, to, to walk into an AGM and, and try to disrupt it and claim they've only ordered half a million of our product. That's not enough. They're racist. They're trying to keep, you know, the, the, the greatest black man in America down and not buying his product. And, even though the product was a complete ripoff of, of Kiwi Ooh. shoe polish, uh, as, as as you've alluded to, the whole thing is just you know, it, it's like everything. It's a terrible cliche, but with everything with Ali, the truth is stranger than fiction. You know, the the truth is stranger than fiction. With the with the sports car company, with the day he launches the sports car company, uh, he is he is basically driving a Winnebago across Middle America. You know, this kind of camper van across Middle America. 
uh, and the, the people who have given the job of bringing them from the hotel to the launch of the of the car, which never ends up being built there in Wisconsin, he basically is driving like a maniac in a camper van down, this, down the road while these cops are driving behind him going, this cannot be real, but it is. That's And then on the way back, having launched the car promotion or the car, you know, the great plan for the car, he then spots a preschool and stops in there, stops the car, walks into the preschool. I'm Muhammad Ali. I'd like to see the kids. And, you know, that, you know, that's the kind of the, mad, the madness. There's a madness. We talked about the, the Republicans, this, this link with the Republicans, but the, the Democrats hadn't thrown the towel in, had they, on getting Harley on side. And there's also a great tale about a union rep who hired a DJ to impersonate Harley's voice to record a message for the Democratic Party, which they then drove around all the African-American neighborhoods blasting out from a loudspeaker. And they put and they put African American boxers in the front seat of the truck to lend credibility to the thing. I mean, this is you know, th- there's a problem that Ali had, which is everybody, not everybody, but lots of people could do really good impressions of Ali, you know, and that was uh, they could impersonate him to a high standard, and that I mean, that was a kind of a joke situation that he's trying to win a local election by pretending Ali's endorsed him and is asking the African-American community to come out and vote. But, you know, it also has a serious consequences. Arthur Morrison is impersonating him all the time, doing newspaper interviews to promote his businesses. Hirschfeld is is uh, using is calling up you know journalists and lobbyists in Washington and politicians pretending to be Ali, trying to influence votes in the House of Congress. So there's a real price to be paid. Fifty one different calls to senators to discuss policy. I mean, you, you've got to wonder just either how good he was at doing impressions or how unbelievably gullible of these senators on the other end of the phone. Well, I'll just say, <laughs> I've been living in America a long time. Nothing would surprise me about the gullibility of American senators. <laughs> I've never heard Hirschfeld's impression, or I could never get an audio or a video of that, but I, I have seen enough American senators speaking uh, to, be, to be able to believe that they would swallow anything. Uh, and it, I mean, this was not, he was not calling them up, by the way, to say, please vote yes on this bill. He was discussing the intricacies of the Fair Housing Act going back over a century and quoting, you know, previous iterations of the bill, you know, really granular detail political stuff. Um, and, you know, when the reports would appear, Ali's closest, the people close to Ali would read it and say, I've never heard him speak about this. <laughs> I didn't know he had a really in-depth knowledge of uh, racism in housing in America over the past century. You know, stuff like that. And and the other thing, and what kind of brought the whole house of cards, and it was exposed by this fantastic American journalist called Dave Kindred, who's written in great journalism about Ali and, and a wonderful book about Ali and Howard Cosell uh, that came out some years ago. But Dave Kindred had been watching Ali for a long time. He'd been very close to Ali. And Kindred was troubled by these reports because whenever Kindred saw Ali, he met the faltering, you know, slowed down, slow in speech, slow in gait, Ali, and he couldn't understand 
how am I not getting this incredibly verbally, you know, verbally acute alley that the others are getting and, and this incredibly sharp alley? Uh, and then it, as it turns out, you know, the, the, in the end, one of the women, Senator Orrin Hatch, the, the Republican from, from Utah, Ali used to call up his office and chat to the secretary in this fast patter of kind of in his prime alley, giving it loads with the secretary. And she would, you know, laugh and joke with Ali, couldn't believe how fast he was on the phone and how fast he spoke. And then Ali turned up at the office one day and could barely speak to her. And she suddenly realized the man on the phone is not the man before me today, standing in front. So Kindred, and even after Kindred exposed that in a lengthy piece, uh, in a lengthy piece, uh, you know, over over several days, even after he exposed that, Hirschfeld brought Ali out to deliver a statement, and the statement was, "I never spoke. I never. I spoke to Dave Kindred. I never saw him take a single note." during our conversation, so none of what he says Incredible. Now, for me, some of the nicest moments described in this book are those that involve the ordinary, everyday person, the children that he randomly stops and talks to and gets photos taken with, the ordinary blue-collar working guy who wants an autograph or a picture. really doesn't matter what race, colour or creed you were. He had time for anyone. And I remember uh, one incident in the book where the police called in Indiana to a a youth disturbance and arrive to find Ali messing around with a group of kids. They get involved on the app by staging a mock arrest. He ends up back at the police precinct and they all end up having their photograph taken. And at the end of the day, it's it's a memorable day for everybody all round. Oh, he and this stuff of just literally stopping the car and getting out when he saw something that interested him and he saw people that interested him. This is a recurring theme in this and you know there was no cordon of security there was no bodyguards you know it was him like you know there's there's a man in the book tells a story about driving through louisville and wanting you know always dreaming of meeting ali and and he couldn't figure out which house was out was this davis miller this uh, no, Davis. Dave, well, actually, that's another one. Davis Miller was that was the writer who'd been obsessed with Ali all his life, and he ends up going to Ali's house, ends up being invited into the house, Ali's mother's house in Louisville, when she was still alive, and basically becoming friends with Ali. He ends up. He actually wrote a wonderful book Tell about of Muhammad Ali. I thought I'd re- Ali. I've read it. I've read it, and it is a fabulous yep. book. A fantastic book. Beautiful book about a friend, an unlikely friendship between between this guy who just again just rocks up to Ali's mother's house, befriends Ali. Ali, you know, locks him in the bathroom at one point in his mother's house um, as a kind of a baptism of fire, if you want. And he, you know, but he was one example. But I was thinking of another who was a truck driver who just stopped and and he's like, I can't figure out which one is Ali's mother's. And he sees a large man standing outside the house. He goes, Do you know which house is Muhammad Ali's mother's? And it turns out to be Muhammad <laughs> Ali, who then says, Oh, come in, come in. And, and he goes, I have your book in the car. Can you sign it? Of course you can. You know, he's in he's in Tulsa, Oklahoma, doing an event. And, you know, a, a man just sees him in the hotel, comes up to him and pulls out his driver's license and said, you know, my name is actually Cassius Clay. And he shows Ali his driver's license. And Ali says, oh, you have to spend the day with us. And the guy goes off for the day and spends the day in Ali's company. You know, you're, you become you become subsumed into the entourage for the day and, and that's it, you know. He, 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 there's an openness, there's this incredible desire 
as you say, to meet the real people. You know, to, he's not, you know, yes, there's a lot of celebrity interaction, a lot of high-powered political influencing and stuff like that, or he's meeting high-powered characters globally. But there is this grassroots thing of, you know, Ali will go anywhere he is invited. He will go. He turns up again and again in boxing clubs. Like we're talking about him getting in the ring. And, and the, throughout the 80s, he would often be at the big fights, you know, the Hagler, Hearns, that kind of stuff. That was you know, the fights that hallmarked the late 80s. Uh, but it, not just there. He would turn up at a fairground promotion in a remote corner of Texas because the guy running the boxing club was once on the American Olympic team with Ali in the 50s. And he would turn up in that corner of Texas and he would get in the ring and wave to the fans in a fairground, you know, where there was cattle being sold earlier in the day or what have you. And Ali would be, <laughs> Ali would be there. And, you know, he would turn up in places you know, one of the things I, I, I like to do when I was researching it was like try to figure out the job. I mean, I, I'm not great on the geography of America, but how remote the places were that he went to. You know, he would go to small town America. Like there's this travel, travel journey across the country in this very expensive, very unreliable car called a Stutz Bearcat, which was big in the 70s and 80s. And the car keeps breaking down and Ali just keeps using the breakdowns as opportunities to go and visit uh, schools. He turns up in a, you know, there's a newspaper report that tells a story in Colorado, a place called Silverthorne, Colorado, population 3,000. And the newspaper editor gets a phone call saying, you might want to come down. Muhammad Ali's in the garage <laughs> down here waiting for his car to be fixed. And the, and the, news, the newspaper guy turns up at the garage and says to, the, says to somebody outside, this may sound really stupid, but I've had a tip off that Muhammad Ali is here. And the guy goes, oh, he's in the back with the mechanics. <laughs> you know, and then from there, the newspaper editor brings him to a high school. He gets into the basketball court. They fill it, they fill it uh, with students and he delivers an impromptu lecture. And it's just, it's extraordinary because who else would do this? And this is, you know, I say to people like, you know, everybody's interested in Ali because he was a great fighter and it's one of the great careers, possibly the greatest career in all of boxing. But it's the other side. It's the it's the extra, you know, it's the outside the ring. There has never been anybody like him. You know, Michael Jordan, you know, Tiger Woods, Messi, these characters, you know, none of them would ever do anything. They wouldn't do 10% of this stuff. They live insulated lives. They live, you know, they live out, uh, be outside the rest of us, you know, beyond the rest of us, beyond our touch. You know, Ali was, you know, Ali turns up in China and Howard Bingham tells the story of they stop on the side of the road and there's a rice field and there's a woman in the rice field or in the paddy field working and uh, this old Chinese woman walks towards them and then she starts mimicking sparring when she sees <laughs> Ali. And, you know, as our opinion says, wherever you go, you know, this man, everybody John, knows him. Just a couple more things I want to mention. I want to touch on that trip in May 94 to Hanoi, where he went at the request of the family of Major Albro Lundi, who was shot down on Christmas Eve in 1970 during the Vietnam conflict. And he was said to still be alive. How do you think Ali felt emotionally when he landed in Vietnam all those years after refusing to go to be part of this conflict? It is a remarkable episode 
it fails obviously but there is something in the in the intent here that i think is wonderful because as you correctly point out this was the most divisive issue in his career and he, even in i think it's only in recent years that he gets full credit and people acknowledge oh he was actually right about that but these are families of men who made the journey to vietnam to fight when he wouldn't do it and they and they, they he goes with them you know with the very people uh, who he'd been on the opposite side to at the time, and he goes there to try to bring back uh, the the bodies of these men, or if they were still alive at the time, who knows, you know. But the intent was wonderful. It was a mark of the man that he would be willing to make that journey, because remember, Vietnam destroyed part of Ali's career. We lost, you know, three prime years of Muhammad Ali. Uh, due to his stance on the Vietnam War, and he goes to Hanoi, and it's just it's just a wonderful humanity moment uh, for all involved. Actually, that you know that there's this this bridge bridge this or this closing uh, uh, you know of the circle from this from this terrible event in the in the history of boat nations. I mean, it was a terrible event. In it, boat it was a sad story, by the way, that because I I went from there and looked at the um, looked at the the story of this guy. Um, Major Alro Lundy, who, who'd actually volunteered to fly one more mission. I think it was either to bring supplies into a, a region that needed medical supplies or to get troops out. And um, and he got uh, he got shot down, but there was never any nobody ever found any evidence that he was uh, he was killed. And his family or his son. Uh, carried on the search. They had all manner of reports and, and pictures that apparently was still alive. But in the end, I think they found out, um, I think it was the early part of the millennium, maybe 2004 five, finally, that there were um, remains returned and he had actually died on impact when his plane had gone down. So it was quite a sad story. Incredibly so. And, and you know, again, it really is. Ali couldn't even, you know, at this point, 94, he was a seriously diminished character verbally. I mean, it was not the old loquacious Ali, but it, he was just lending his presence to this this effort, you know, this endeavor to try to close, um, you know, to, to find closure for this family that who'd, who'd been through this terrible, terrible event. Because, you know, even whatever we're talking in 2022, in America today, you still see homes where they have the black MIA flag, missing an action flag, hanging to acknowledge that they had somebody who never, you know, that they never quite found out what happened to them. They never came home. And lastly, I don't think uh, there's any doubt, really, that he is, Muhammad Ali, the most influential sports person of all time. And the chance of anybody actually taking that crown or that, that, that throw is, is slim. Because as we've said, today's stars or sports stars or whatever live such enclosed lives. They would never be seen to be taking the risks that, uh, that Ali did. Absolutely not, Tim. I mean, I can't see. And, and again, I try to explain this to my kids and to my students. The difference here is, is Ali's fame was not, assisted or enhanced by Nike or any, you know, company, you know, Adidas in the case of Lionel Messi or, you know, anybody pushing the legend, pushing the brand. This was an organic kind of fame that was self-made, uh, you know, that, that 
it's totally different. And it was it was self made because he would go places like you know to go back to the England stuff. You know the the cover of the book is this picture of him in Handsworth standing on an aeroplane stairs underneath a bypass. <laughs> you know underneath a bypass, standing there addressing the crowd. And you're like, it's the most Ali moment ever because he's right there with the peop- with his people in on the streets delivering a speech. Uh, he had been invited there by a local councillor called James Hunt, and he basically went anywhere he was invited. You know, the, the stars of today, obviously, it's, it's a different world we live in. They're more insulated. They're aloof. They're away from us all. But this man, you know, the, 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 the benefits or he reaped the benefits or he reaped the rewards of his approach because that was why, you know, here we are six years after his death. We are still talking about him. We're still trying to assess his impact. We're still trying to actually tell all the stories. You know, I hope I've told the stories of 15 years of his life that were kind of neglected. But but with Ali, we're, we still learn stuff every day that makes us reassess just how incredible a character he was. It's not just what an athlete he was, but what a character in, in the kind of the story of the last kind of 60, 70 years of, of history around the world. Well, that was the author, Dave Hannigan, who joined me to talk about his book, 15 Rounds in the Wilderness. It is going to be out this June event in a couple of weeks and it will be available from all the usual outlets. And that is it. We'll be back in a few weeks' time when we'll be talking to Nedum Onwoha about uh, his career with Manchester City, amongst others. His new book is called Kicking Back, and it is out now. Uh, don't forget, you can download all of the previous editions of the show right the way back to edition number one three years ago uh, via the website or any of our streaming providers. For the moment, though, from me, Tim Cable, thank you very much for joining me, and I look forward to your company again in a few weeks' time.